Welcome to this episode of Temple Beth Am's Are You Coming Back? Personal, candid conversations with Jewish thought leaders across the country on the future of Jewish practice. Hosted by Rabbi Cantor Hilary Chorney. Are you coming back? Wait, don't answer that. Not yet, anyway. We're half a year deep into this pandemic, and the landscape of Jewish communal life is shifting mightily. We've navigated Pesach seders over Zoom and mourned a lost summer of Jewish camping. We survived an unprecedentedly weird High Holy Days, with drone-recorded footage of empty sanctuaries and cardboard cutouts in our pews and 72-hour Zoom meetings. Welcome to a live experiment in Judaism, full of imagination, creativity, and invention. The longer this lingers, the more clear it becomes that the future version or versions of our Jewish communal and spiritual worlds will have been deeply transformed through this era. So I wanted to call on some Jewish thought leaders who are, or were once, also synagogue goers, and ask them to turn inward to the personal, the ritual, the spiritual. The following conversation with Dr. Yehuda Kurtzer, president of the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America, is the first in this series of discussions. Stay tuned for this exchange as we explore the rich contours of our core question. Are you coming back? Welcome to the conversation. Are you coming back? Is the question on the table, but not the only question that I'm hoping we get to today. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here, Yehuda. Um, for those who are listening, I want to frame a little bit who you are, which will speak to why I invited you into this conversation, though I think that will become more and more self-evident as we dive into some of the questions at hand today. Yehuda is the president of the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. He's co-editor of the new book, The New Jewish Canon, and host of his own podcast, The Hartman Institute's Identity Crisis Podcast. Yehuda, I have to start with some gratitude for your saying yes, because uh, you knew you were pioneering in this conversation too, to some extent. This isn't an established podcast, unlike your delightful podcast. So I really appreciate your saying yes to being here today. I'm delighted to be here, and I love rabbis, so I'm always excited to support the things that rabbis do. Great. I will add another tally to my list of people who I like who also like rabbis. Which exactly. It's a, a great list of, uh, of people. I'm glad to have you on it. Uh, I, I invited you here today in large part because as a Jewish thought leader, it's inescapable that you have your own Jewish identity, practice, and experiences to explore. And there are so many questions each of us may or may not be ready to answer for ourselves about what our Jewish life will look like in the coming months and in the coming years. I know each of us has to answer professionally in our own way to our prognostication about what that will be. We rely on data and on our guts and on our experiences for that. But the same is true as we wonder about our own experiences. Before I can get, though, to what you think is going to happen in the future, I kind of want to dive in by talking about who you were before this all started. So I wanted to ask you if you could take us back a year to Yehuda and family, or just Yehuda if that moves you. 
and give us a snapshot of what 2019 Jewish practice looked like, shul life, synagogue life. What what were you doing a year ago now as it related to just being Jewish and doing Jewish? Yeah, so, um, so I love talking about this question in part because, as you said, there's so much thinking about where we're going to go in the future. And a lot of my work professionally involves trying to come up with some wisdom to help the Jewish community think forward. So I like the exercise of thinking personally and also like the exercise of thinking reflectively. So if I can, I want to go back actually 10 years and then we'll, and we'll skip ahead quickly to a year ago. Wow. Um, just when you were like seven or eight years old. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I was just a kid. Yeah. Um, the reason I want to mention is because before I came to Hartman, uh, Stephanie and I were living in Boston, uh, where I had gone to graduate school and Stephanie had gone to law school and was working as a lawyer. And I had my first job in Boston and, and we had initially like, we loved our community in Brookline. And the thing that made it so special was that, we had gotten involved with a small group of friends back in 2005 and, and started a minyan, our own uh, traditional egalitarian minyan that that was kind of like refugees from the Orthodox shul and from the conservative shul, and it was perfect. Um, and the big project that we had in our Jewish life was running shul. It was a huge passion project. It was all lay-led. Um, I remember we, we took our newborn to shul, I think two weeks after he was born, and we were there on time because we were in charge, you know what I mean? And it was ours and it was, it was really a powerful labor of love. And, um, and the big, among the many changes in our life that happened when I got this job with Hartman and we moved to New York in 2010 was this, first of all, this tragedy of you start your shul, you know, it's imagine like you get to design exactly the shul that you want and then you have to pick up and leave it. It, it felt a little bit like, um, felt biblical. Um, but the other change was that we went from being in charge of shul to becoming shul clients and shul customers. And both of us moved into professional jobs in the Jewish community for the first time, such that a lot of our Jewish identity was now also tied into our professional and oftentimes very public lives. And so we also didn't have the time or the luxury to also be hyperactive shul, uh, shul people. Um, nor did we have the luxury to like design the shul that we wanted. And so we became in some ways reluctant, at the beginning, reluctant, like shul attendees show up late on Shabbat, complain a little bit, but not enough that you have, that you get pulled on to becoming a volunteer. Um, and, uh, and, and actually, and, and at the same time, drawing a lot of fulfillment, I have felt a lot of fulfillment for my Jewish life that happens through my teaching, my travel around the country. Um, Shabbat became really like a refuge for us of sleeping late. We're, we're Shabbat observant, sleeping late, having wonderful Shabbat meals at home. It's the time where I, I really tried not to travel and be away on weekends. And then like, and walking to shul to see our friends, sometimes being on time and sometimes not. Uh, and having a very, um, a Shabbat practice that was, was rooted in like long meals around the table with family and friends. So in some sense, you know, now going back, and actually, the last Shabbat meal we hosted pre-pandemic was right at the intersection of these two things, because we had over for dinner 15 rabbinical students from different denominations as part of a Shabbaton that we were running through Hartman for rabbi, for rabbinical students from across the denominations. And they were the last guests we had, basically. It was the Friday, first, it was the Friday night right before Purim. And, and uh, in retrospect, we should not have hosted that dinner. And thank God it wasn't a super spreader event. <laughs> it might have been. Um, and since then, it's basically, you know, been us at home alone. Now, 
it, the the big change that that's meant for my life personally is this is I've gone seven months without traveling for work. That hadn't happened for 10 years. Uh, and previously, I was traveling basically every other week for work. So just the con- the continuity of being home with family has been dramatic. Um, what we lost in terms of shul, basically, was the a place where we, we went, where we walked, we checked in, where we love our rabbi, we love our community. I don't, I, on a personal level, it's not as much a religious loss as it was a social communal loss to the extent that you could separate those things. I just miss walking to shul and Shabbat and seeing people and instead having to focus all of our Jewish life and, and home life around the same sense of nest, which had been kind of reserved in the past for, uh, for when we had to kind of leave work behind. And now that's just what it is all the time. It's, it's, our Jewish life is basically nest all the time. I'm curious, thinking back to your establishment of what's the minion called? Washington Square Washington Minion. Washington Square, great. Um, back, thinking back to Washington Square and sort of the re-up on the Chavira movement, traditional egal, except partnery and welcoming of all refugees from all movements. Exactly. Uh, and uh, and I want to come back later to the word that you used, which is tragedy. It really is a tragedy to lose the kind of Jewish experiences that you that you love uh, having designed, that are beloved, that are yours, and leap right to to a question I hadn't thought about before you you brought this up, but it, it definitely is related to your having established a minion, which is to make it a, a disruption in your life, less so religiously and more so social community, to go to how it could not be a disruption in your religious life. Could you speak to both your own literacy as a Jew, and whether or not that's a, a vehicle and making it possible for you to still be religiously comfortable. And if it's not the literacy, which is just uh, conjecture on my part, right? Is it your Jewish literacy that allows you to to still have a fulfilled religious life? Or is there something else or something else's that makes it possible for you to not think of this as much so, at least comparatively, a religious loss in this time? Yeah, I think literacy is a part of it. I mean, you know, I, I suppose in comparison to the overwhelming majority of American Jews, it was not debilitating to think about like running Jewish holidays in our home without the service and support of clergy. That wasn't a, we weren't, we wasn't nervous about, can we run a Seder? We were running a Seder for a long time. We just couldn't have my parents. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, and we didn't, we don't use Zoom um, on Shabbat. So it was not a, it wasn't even a question. And and as in some ways, like, had we done that, had we said, now we're going to start streaming stuff on Shabbat, that would have been like a conceptual adjustment that would have required a whole bunch of work to figure out, are we comfortable with this? And what does this mean? And we didn't. It just basically was um, kind of leaning in to our home life. But I think the other side is, you know, our kids are educated in day school. Stephanie is ahead of a Jewish day school. So, it, you know, there's a lot of boundaries blurred between um, parent education and, 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 you know, what we do at home and what we do at school. But a big part of how we have chosen to parent and how we have chosen to educate our kids is through the, the feeling of deep comfort and safety with our home, uh, home Jewish practices. And, and, um, and in some sense, I've been, I've been kind of keeping track in my head of this whole liturgical year at home. And what all this 
joy that we've discovered in in enormous in a condition of enormous sadness once you can process the loss we're not going away for shavuot we're not having guests in our home for sukkot we were able to kind of then say like all right well what are we do what's what are we actually now capable of doing at home in a way that we didn't before if this is hopefully one year or two years of this weird experience, what's going to be different for every Pesach afterwards as a result of this? So again, I don't know that, as you're, as I'm saying this, I'm kind of recognizing to your question that the line between the social losses, communal losses, and religious losses are totally blurred, because this is, of course, religion also. Um, but I think that that's where, that's where at least my kind of headspace has been. And, and at times, I'll tell you honestly, like I ran out of gas right before Sukkot, because we had... <laughs> We had done so much for Pesach and actually wound up doing a tremendous amount for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, including getting involved with creating backyard services here in Riverdale, which I wound up leading. Um, so there was a lot. And then I finally at Sukkot and I'm like, I don't know that I can I don't know that I can mobilize for yet another one of these. Uh, but I'm trying really hard uh, to, to look for, you know, what do we what's what's what have we gotten out of this that's quite special uh, with all that we've lost? Talk to me about making that call to either say yes, or maybe it was your idea in the first place to become, to go back to that role of leading, to leave your home. I don't know how often you leave your home to do religious anything, but to go run a backyard minion, a little bit of a callback. Uh, and also maybe did you feel a duty to do it? Did you feel it was a chance at freedom to exercise a part of yourself you hadn't? Uh, not just about what was the experience like, but what was it like to say, yeah, yeah that's how I'm going to spend my high holy days. And did that contribute to running out of gas? <laughs> right. Well, it definitely did. It definitely contributed to running out of gas. Look, the one thing I neglected to say before is we started that minion back in 2005. We moved to New York in 2010. We went back every year, just about between 2010 and 2020 for high holidays. And I went back to lead services. And that was basically the one time a year where I was doing kind of quote unquote religious leadership. And I actually kind of loved that I wasn't going back as a scholar in residence, which is usually how I go to other shuls. I was going back to lead davening. And it was a part of me that I, I truly love. I really only do it a couple times a year for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, but I, I love it. Um, so this year is the first time where we were not back at Washington Square Minion for leading services. Now, part of the reason I, I wound up leading services here was I kind of brought it on myself because in May, I want to say, of the pandemic, I wrote a piece, um, I published a piece in Think on Medium, where I said, this high holidays make me nyanim where I'm calling on, especially the conservative movement, you knew this was going to happen in orthodoxy anyway, um, especially the conservative movement, not to not to invalidate the Zoom approach. There are people who are going to need to Zoom into shul, and shuls are going to need to provide for people um, who, who neither can um, nor want to, to be in any sort of in-person thing. But as a complement to that, this was a moment to create micro communities as a community engagement strategy that could have generational impact. It also was a moment to train a whole bunch of people to lead high holiday services. They're not the cancer, but they could still could do something really special that could have an impact. So once I had written that piece, my shul read it, and then I got called to a committee meeting. <laughs> and people were like, hey, you put this out there. Do you want to help us do this? And in the end, um, I really was proud of how our shul did it because they they really stretched beyond their own comfort level to say, we're going to allow for the setting up of multiple minyanim in this community. We're going to give people the option 
of do they want in-person services or do they want um, online services? And then they gave an enormous amount of autonomy to the backyard minionim. They said, here's a basic framework of what we want you to do, but you, you choose your own adventure of how you want this to look. And once those conditions were created, obviously I was going to be involved. I was Obviously I was going to contribute. It felt like a, a way of grasping a little bit of this feeling of what we were going to lose by not being with our minyan. Wound up weirdly that about a quarter of the minion in the backyard were people who were either at one point part of Washington Square Minion. So that was actually quite special and emotional. We were still davening with a lot of the people who we had davened with in, in the past. And, you know, it wasn't perfect. Uh, you know, trying to cram davening into two hours with very little singing. And it was cold. But it, it there were parts of it that were absolutely magical. And... Um, and, and really surprisingly so. And I guess maybe because I, my expectations were so low, they were vastly exceeded. Um, and I think that was part of, yes, why I ran out of gas, because there was I was so nervous going into that. Yeah, you and I were talking just before we started recording about this idea that the personal and the professional is blurred. And at at some level, I imagine that you have an awareness that anything that you write that sort of futurism or sociology might impact in some way upon you, but that's a pretty deep dive into how it then winds up feeling incumbent upon you to say yes to that backyard minion, or at least to the committee meeting, which to say yes to a committee meeting at a synagogue, I mean, you know, Um, but there is something about speaking to the faith that we have in the ideas that we put out there in writing and then being able to step up uh, and to be able to step up in that way. So it's an interesting marriage of those ideas. There was something else that you, that you said that, that kind of, um, kind of stuck with me and um, it had to do with this idea of recapturing being with the people whom you loved and how emotional that is. Cause to go back to the idea of, Part, partly the tragedy that's overshadowing everything is the the social, but it's also a social religious. Um, what what was it like to gather? Did it feel like gathering? What did it feel like to actually be there with people you love, but under constraints? Yeah, it, it, um, the the one the one thing that was challenging about it was that the shul did a tremendous job to try to accommodate everybody who requested being an outdoor service, but actually a lot of the people who requested it who were not regulars didn't wind up showing up. So it wound up being smaller crowds than would have been useful outside. Like, you know, 40 people outside in the tent, we could have really, it would have been, it would have felt better than 20 to 25. That said, it did, it absolutely felt like some form of gathering. It felt, you know, you know what it is, I think, there was some time earlier in the pandemic, early on, actually, maybe a month or six weeks in, where I got up on Shabbat morning and I just walked to shul and then walked back. Um, I think I needed the ritual of walking to shul about a mile away from shul. I needed that feeling. There was something off about every Shabbat morning, like being locked in that one place. So seeing on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, everybody walking towards one location felt it felt emotionally charged that's part of the gathering it wasn't that we were in actually close quarters to each other everybody was spread out and everybody was wearing masks but everybody was converging maybe that's the word i'm looking for that feeling i think a part of community is convergence and i felt that 
I felt that pretty acutely. And especially, you know, in our community, they, they set up these minyanim geographically. Uh, but a handful of people walked way farther than the one that they were assigned to geographically to come to our minyan because we were part of the same kind of micro chavura. And to see that, that was part of that same kind of story of convergence. We're, we're coming together to do something, to achieve something. And, and we know it's not how we imagine Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur is supposed to look, but it, it, there's, still a, there's still a power in that, that kind of convergence. Yeah, I, I appreciate that idea of convergence a lot. I often find myself trying to describe the difference between Ashkenazi and Sephardi davening styles and the idea of the push-pull of the peticha and chatima, this idea that you begin a paragraph together and you all go off individually and come back together. There's a pace setting that's necessary in that room, and it really is more of a convergence than a davening together for a great deal of the davening where the person who is sent by the community to lead davening, the shaliyah or shlichat zibor, they're not really fulfilling anything on anyone else's part. They're just keeping the convergence on pace. So that mm-hmm. resonates with me, that idea of a gathering coming back together and it being yeah. natural. Yeah, you know, um, Stephanie's, it, her, Stephanie's background is uh, her parents are Tunisian and Iraqi. So she grew up in, in Mizrahi shuls in Los Angeles. And, um, and since moving to the East Coast, has basically got, you know, Ashkenazified. Um, but one of the things that was powerful about Armenian that I think helped her kind of reconcile that which she missed, which was the davening as a much more collective experience in, in Sephardic, Sephardic and Israeli shuls, was that we ran Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur basically like a rave. I mean, it was just, it was mostly about collective singing and about collective community. So it was still Ashkenazi, in 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 the liturgy and a whole bunch of other things, but it it felt very communal in ways that I I have oftentimes feel is missing in um, in in Ashkenazi synagogues. I can feel that, and I can also feel in the way you talk about it how much you miss that minion regularly. Yeah. It's a it's a part of you and a part of your identity. I was also moved by the way that you were talking about that walk you took to shul on the morning when you missed it. Um, it reminds me of. Uh, a podcast that I listen to regularly, Reply All. I'm a big fan. Uh, and in their latest episode, we're speaking about how one of the podcast hosts um, takes baths regularly now. He has entered, he's, he's submitted that as a part of his own self-care regimen. And he plays games on his cell phone in the bathtub. And his co-host was making a little fun of him. He's like, what What are you taking a bath for if you're if you're playing on a silly game on your phone. And he said, I'm trying to substitute for my commute time. Mm. I really miss those downtimes, those unlabeled times when I was allowed. And sometimes by dint of, you'll know this as a, as a New Yorker, and I know as a former New Yorker, those times when you're, when you're cut off from Wi-Fi that are non-Shabbat, you know, those precious times when you're forced into reading something on your phone because people are squeezing onto either side of you and there's nothing else you could do besides mm-hmm. glance at your phone or listen to a podcast to be meta again. Uh, and and what you said about your walk to shul reminds me so much of that. And I wonder what of that resonates with you as an idea. Do you miss your commute? Do you miss do you miss that downtime? And have you found other ways to get it other than walking to shul? Because I'm yeah. listening. I'd love to learn. 
Yeah, that's a beautiful, I, the beautiful uh, frame. I, I think that one thing that, um, I guess one way to, to, to think about this is about ritualizing of time, um, and the ways in which we pass, we passively ritualize time. Um, and commute is one of those. I have a ritual. It takes a certain amount of time and therefore, and then once I know that ritual, it, it takes on certain psychic qualities. Um, what I feel as a result of having it, what I feel as a result of losing it. I think in the first couple of months of pandemic, I feel like I lost a sense of ritualized time because we didn't really know when we were going to go back to normal, whether we would go back to normal. Um, you know, like everybody else, we were overwhelmed by everybody being at home. You know, in, in here in Riverdale, we kind of got things first. My son's school was the first school, I think, in the country to close uh, at SAR. And um, it, was very, it was very dizzying. And I, I think one of the things that has come back is, um, is, is, is ritual time in that once you have to adjust to a different normal of your life, you're going to start sometimes passively, you know, generating those rituals and sometimes actively. So, you know, for me, one of the things that is now that now shapes my day in a way that never did before, again, because the travel is uh, Stephanie runs a school. She's got to be there early. I drive the kids to school in the morning. I pick them up from the city. It's a lot of time uh, with them in the car for half of it alone for the other half of it. But it now, or I now have an organ, like my time is organized. <laughs> That's where my day starts. It happens in the middle of the day. Then I run home and get on a podcast with somebody in, with a rabbi in Los Angeles. Um, so workday continues. But I think that I think I've been gravitating towards a re-ritualization of time in a totally new normal. And I think it's probably useful for us to be thinking about that using religious language, phenomenologically religious language like ritual. Because if you don't sanctify time and ritual is one of the things that sanctifies time then you feel like you're not in control of any of it a hundred percent uh we had a candidate who came to Beijing this past week who offered in a frame much more beautifully than i can may speak to the fact that she's a producer with a with netflix uh knows how to write a good story but she basically said i, I first addressed shabbat as a burdensome concept that i wasn't sure i could take on as boundaries to my time and now I see it as one of the things that teaches me best in my professional life, what it means to have healthy boundaries. Hmm. I 100% agree with you, Yehuda. I think religious language and Zman language and being able to speak to something that's of a higher authority, whatever you assign that to, being, being the thing that allows you to say no when you need to say no and to divide your time when you need to divide time uh, is to sort of hand a little bit of that burden over to this sacred frame, hmm. you know, and say... It's not that I'm saying no to it. It's that my healthy boundary system, my sacred boundary system helps me to say no to these things. Yeah. And you have to expect when you when you do that, that there's always going to be then you, you have to prepare yourself psychically that when there are disruptions of those rituals, it's going to feel painful and it's going to feel traumatic. And that's, I think, part of the risk involved with with ritual thinking is you have to be prepared for that. But I would accept I, I choose that trade off. I completely agree. And I also think that it speaks to this idea, which I think you were teasing a little bit when you said, if we hadn't known that we wouldn't Zoom on Shabbat or Pesach, which overlapped with it, I think this side, who remembers April. But uh, if you hadn't known that, those boundaries would be so much harder. Mm -hmm. And I feel myself tempted to go to the, to the projections and the sociological here a little bit more. But 
I think that the conservative movement more than any other movement and the traditional EGAL swath of the universe more than any other grouping of people who were used to practicing Judaism uh, regularly and communally are in the tightest spot mm-hmm. when it comes to commuting what they used to do to what to do now, because the boundaries are in that beautiful space of nuance hmm. that we love so much. And yet now every decision is a decision. Yeah. Every, everything is a decision. I find it really challenging. Yeah. I mean, I, this is probably off topic, but I, my general view has been as a, as I guess now a dues paying member of a conservative synagogue, which was not, I know not my upbringing. I I think it's a totally healthy and natural dynamic for all of the movements, all the denominations to be struggling with, like, how do we adapt to the technological age? We've been asking that question since basically Migdal Bavel. Um, but the thing that frustrates me is when those conversations are not conducted through the prism of how, how do we, how do we adapt to technology in order to achieve the highest moral and ethical um, pieces of our tradition and when it sometimes is about convenience. And I think, I think the zoom moment was, was beautiful because it was about saving lives. There are human beings who we're not going to reach and, and a, a, an epidemic of loneliness, which is traveling together with this pandemic of COVID. And so when we were able to say to people, yes, you can stream with your parents, your Pesach Seder, I think we were saving lives and there's, there's no, there's no way to argue that. But it does. But once you're in that business, it creates that kind of you're on that liminality between the permitted and the forbidden. And, and you see that kind of slippage that we're not we're not always talking about our moral and ethical most pressing needs. We're sometimes talking about how to make things more convenient. Yes. And it requires us to rely on the literacy of every person who's subject to those new changes and their understanding or not of the nuance of some of those decisions. Why is it that your shul is comfortable using Zoom and YouTube, but we wouldn't find you using the chat? <laughs> I I went to shul. I want to get to this topic next, which is, you know, sort of virtually expanding your taste through exploration. But uh, I, I went to this shul this last Shabbat in, I don't know, Tulsa, uh, says a congregate. And I loved that during the Mishaberah, the Cholim, when we were praying for, for, for those who are in need of healing, they typed the names of those who were, who were sick. Rabbi, why aren't we? And then <laughs> it's a reminder of my responsibility, our responsibility to be accountable to the ongoing literacy and understanding of these decisions. It's not just how they're made, which I fully agree with you on, but also how people feel about the seeming incongruities that exist when we say no. Yeah. Yeah. So have you explored other shuls, uh, other places? I won't tell. You know. No, not really. I mean, I, the only, um, you know, uh, I guess Purim was the first thing that got canceled as a Jewish, as a religious holiday. So we were on, we heard Megillah on, from our shul and our kids cried. They just couldn't, they couldn't really handle it. Purim is a big deal in our house. It's like the biggest holiday of the year. The, the costumes are extremely elaborate. I'm trying to remember what we dressed up as this year. It's a big deal. And they, the idea that we weren't going to go and be with everybody was just overwhelming. I think one of them just left, you know, just couldn't, couldn't handle it. Yeah. Um, 
and and early in the pandemic, I remember the shul said, "Hey, will you come online and and do a dvar on Friday night um, before before shul starts, even before Shabbat starts? We're doing a pre-Shabbat thing." And my kids were so exhausted from Zoom and from school that they basically said, "No, we don't want to do it. We we want to make Shabbat in our house, the non-Zoom day." And I was like, "Okay, I'm listening to that as actually religious." too. That's religious also. And I wanted to honor that. So the only Kabbalat Shabbat that we actually went to this summer was the Jews of Color Kabbalat Shabbat um, during the the post-George Floyd uh, uh, protests that I think uh, Rabbi Sandra Lawson was leading. It was run through B'chol Hashon. And we just felt like, okay, that's we're going to show up for that. And um, But besides that, it just hasn't been, it's not, it's just not how our Shabbat works. And I, I think everybody's pretty happy about that. So if you haven't done it, then it gives me permission to ask you more broadly, just putting on your hat as, as somebody who's an observer of Jewish life as it's unfolding, particularly in this liminal era, what what do you think other people going to other schools like that might do, though, for us? Like, if you were to yeah. go and do it, what would it mean to you? So my understanding of... Uh, the limited data that I've seen so far is that the usage, the, the usage of like available opportunity that that the Zoom era has created, has created like massive super users among people who are already engaged in Jewish life, but has not dramatically opened up that people who weren't going to go to shul beforehand are now going to shul. Um, that said, um, I think that the most the most promising, interesting development that comes out of this. Um, is is for for communities and congregations to understand their value proposition and to not try to achieve value propositions that they that they can't. Um, you know, Central Synagogue I think had half a million people total access its stuff on the high holidays. Well, most congregations are not resourced like Central Synagogue. They do not have that kind of um, financial ability, uh, web technology, et cetera, et cetera, production values, et cetera. But but most of the people who are looking to their shul for support uh, and for community are not looking for multi-million dollar production values. They're not. Now, you may get periodically a congregant who says, you could tell me that I'm wrong, who says, like, I like that they're putting names of people in the Misha Barrels. Why can't we do that? But I, I don't know. I'm trying to listen for, I really, you know, Rabbi, I really want to be at our shul. I don't really want to be at that other shul. And I'm trying to figure out if there are better ways to be in my shul. And I, I've also seen with a bunch of the rabbis that I talk to, you know, many of them have recognized that the way that they're going to support their congregants right now is through the is through the unseen holy work of visiting the sick and burying the dead and comforting the lonely and doing the things that are actually native to the work of the rabbinate. And it's okay if some of those people are going to go to Friday night at some other service, because ultimately when it comes to the question of who's going to visit them when they're sick, it's still going to happen on a local level. So I think there's a really interesting opportunity to recalibrate. What do we provide locally that is essential services? And what do we not have to compete with? And it's okay if there are, you know, big institutions, congregations that are capable of delivering things at, at, and we see it by the way, in our institution also, I'm very I, I'm very aware that many rabbis accessed Hartman summer teaching throughout the summer. And in many congregations, they actually just 
replaced what they were going to do as the adult ed stuff for the summer. They were like, if Hartman is doing it, why would we compete with that? And I think that that's great. This week we had a rabbi who, um, who was take, we were doing these 20 minute talks, uh, every day for the last two weeks on, on citizenship and democracy. And we had one rabbi who was basically just going onto YouTube and teaching that and said like, okay, we'll watch 20 minutes together. And then we're going to talk about it for an hour. And I love that because it's the best of both worlds. They, what those people want is a relationship with their rabbi, but the rabbi doesn't have to replicate the, the creation of that content. And I think that that could happen for our community in a synagogue and worship space also. I think it would go a long way towards the idea, the possibility of creating radical equity, which is a phrase that I've uh, I've been exploring in general as I think about access during this era, access for folks with disabilities, access for people who wouldn't normatively be able to walk across the street and find a resourced Jewish community, uh, but who can now turn on a computer if they're so comfortable or program it and uh, and be in shul. And I think it would go a long way towards that radical equity if that centralization of resources felt like it could be a complement to whatever somebody might be able to access, uh, to offer locally, uh, it, then that that is equalizing in its own way. You know, it's, it, it's, it's equity that's achieved through a certain amount of inequity, right? Because there are certain, right. because the, the national, those big national offerings are oftentimes heavily resourced in ways that can't happen at the local level. But I, I think it's a bad setup for local congregation with a nice following to see itself as in competition with, with the organ, with the synagogue that does the best web streaming services in Shabbat. It's a bad model and it, there's no need for it. Because actually, the, 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 again, the core anthropological human needs of what people seek out of religion are not going to be exhausted by a great service on Friday night on Zoom. And if we, if we, if we structure a notion of competition, then we're going to compete for that and actually miss out that our communities, our congregations can be supporting people in deep human ways that are not about that. Right. And, and the counter to that idea that we touched on earlier, which is that setting boundaries of time is really useful and sacred. And it's a great practice. It's a great Jewish practice to set more boundaries. The counter to that in this time is that there are some resources, including time and offerings, which are more expansive than mm -hmm. ever. We can think so much more expansively about what's out there. So why compete in one individual time slot when people are, you know, people are not consuming, uh, to make the comparison, you know, television in 1998 to TiVo to now when we just are sort of on demand, people are changing entirely their relationships with synagogues and competition need not be the framework at all. It's expansive yeah. what people right. can access and when. That's right. And, and, and honestly, if there are, we all know that there are going to be major changes to the ecosystem that result from this. And some synagogues aren't going to make it. And some community organizations are not going to make it. And I, and, and a single institution going out of business is not a tragedy. The community not having the resources that we need in terms of synagogues and educators for our community will be a tragedy. And so if we can get out of the like thinking of the competitive mindset on a synagogue by synagogue level and more use this moment to say, what do we have collectively to provide for the spiritual and, and religious and communal needs of our people? I think that it's hard to do it because we don't really have a communitarian ethos, but if we could mobilize that, it would be an extraordinary outcome of this hard time. The economist to me wants to entirely agree with you when you say 
one synagogue going out of business isn't a tragedy. But when I marry that with the thought that you shared earlier, which is that, Rabbi, I don't really just want to go to a synagogue anywhere. I want, I want you. I want us. I want, I want our community. It really is existential on a miniature level for every one of those communities. So again, to talk about how the National Jewish uh, Network can be helpful in to to those local communities, it's that framing, right? It's that it's that framing that you're offering now, which is that national communities can say, it's, it's okay. It's okay if you're flailing because we've got. We can catch you on this, right? While you might not be able to right. afford the kind of in-depth, rich adult educational framework, we've got your back at Hartman mm-hmm. or what, just to give it a Hartman example, then mm-hmm. plug them again. Yeah. Um, I wonder if we could switch to another topic that is so deeply intertwined personally and professionally for you, which is to the topic of this book that just came out and, uh, and uh, just to remind people, um, they can that you co-wrote this with Claire Suffren, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so the two of you wrote the new Jewish canon. It's recently out. I'm looking forward to reading it. And I wanted to ask you about what it's been like and how it's changed you in any way, finishing the writing and the editing of this piece at this time. Well, uh on a personal level, there was a, a good bit of sadness that, you know, I was really hoping to launch this book in the summer at the Hartman Summer Programs in Israel under the Jerusalem sky, you know, out in the courtyard. Uh, we had a lot of beautiful activities planned. I've seen um, the Institute do beautiful book events there for, you know, Deborah Lipstadt's uh, anti-Semitism here and now and Yessi Klein Halevi's Like Dreamer. So I, I had a certain vision of what that launch was going to look like. Uh, and obviously that didn't happen. Instead, we had a very lovely event uh, where uh, the journalist and our friend Abby Pogrebin um, hosted us virtually um, for a book a book launch for the summer. And um, and the whole experience of pushing a book out into the world is more it's more tactile than you think. It does mean like showing up around the country and doing book events and actually holding people, getting their books and signing them. There's something uh, much more tactile than just putting the book out. Uh, so we've, I've missed that and it's felt a little bit sad. Um, the book, however, is, is going to the places that we want it to go. It's starting conversations. We know of, um, a number of many, quite, quite many rabbis who are using it as a teaching tool, which was our dream. Both Claire and I are educators, um, more than we are authors of books. And for both of us, this was a passion project that came out of our teaching, which was that I found that I was teaching, recent texts as primary texts, even though they are, they tend to be thought of as secondary texts. And I want, we wanted to challenge that divide, that things that are written in the 1990s can actually be primary texts that help us to unpack the Jewish condition. And so we were teaching them and they were like, you know, it'd be really helpful to have a textbook. So we wrote it, <laughs> we compiled it. Um, and so to see, you know, adult ed classes being taught uh, has been very, very gratifying. It's exactly what we want to have happen. And to have them taught not by us. People just say, this is teachable. And we're putting together a, a, a leader's guide and a website to be a companion for that. The other nice thing that's happened as part of the book release is, you know, because nobody can travel and everybody's doing podcasts and, and webinars, the the outreach of, hey, can you come do this? is so much easier today than it was than it has been before. So, you know, I did a talk for um, a university in Australia. That was great. 
they never would even invited me because like what we're not going to fly you to australia to come do a book talk for 30 people but like hey if, if you're on zoom anyway what difference does it make come at this time when it's convenient for both of us so those things have opened up and i'm, I'm really hoping as more reviews of the book get out there that i more than um I, I don't really care about book sales but i do want people to and people want to study it i think there's study a lot of studyable material in there and i think it's uh it's a compliment to the bookshelf I appreciate how, speaking of compliments, that this project and the idea of creating these, moving contemporary texts to the idea of being primary sources also comes together with the Gender Inequity Project and this concept, uh, along with a wide-ranging conversation about the kind of test and and how we incorporate non-white um, male, non-exclusive white male teaching slates, uh, whether we're talking about a syllabus, which I think we should include in the whole text uh, sheet conversation, source sheet conversation, but to to treat more recent voices as primary texts is to honor the institutions that have more recently, meaning within the past 50 to 70 years, been inclusive of and empowering of people who don't fit that paradigm. And so to create create a space for those sources to be considered primary sources is, is to additionally lift those up. Well, yes and no. I think part of what that part of what this do, part of what our book also does is our book also continues to expose the blind spots of the organized Jewish community from 1980 to 2015. If it w- if we had done a, a much more activist project, which would have been not what were the dominant ideas and expressions of those ideas in this period, but what should have been the under-recognized dominant emergent ideas of this period, then I think we'd have been closer to what you're describing. But there's a lot of stuff in that book that, um, that I don't think we as a Jewish community should be proud of, whether it's the authors who had personal failings, authors who had personal failings that overlapped with their professional agendas, individuals who fomented terror. I mean, there's terrible stuff. Um, so I wish it had, I wish it correlated more to the ethical vision that you're laying forward of like, how do we actually teach a Torah as the normative narrative in our community that is consistent with our values? Um, but some of what we have to do, both Claire and I are historians, some of what we have to do is also understand why is our community the way it is? And in order to do that, you have to actually take stock of the ideas that emerged in a period of time and not just the ones that you wished it. Does this change what you want to read? Have you been reading differently during this pandemic, either because of the pandemic or because of what you've been writing? Well, you know, it's not a coincidence that the pandemic is overlapping with like a crisis of American democracy, obviously because we could have a better democracy that would handle this pandemic better. It's not a coincidence. But I have been trying for mostly reasons related to self-care, besides doom scrolling through Twitter, to not read, to not be watching that much news and to not be engaging with that much news, except that which I need to read and engage with. Um, and that's trying to, I'm trying to stay focused on reading things that I actually, I, my, I feel like my work has to be, you got to think 20, 30 years out that in both directions, wherever we came from, where we're going. So I'm trying to stay on that. And it's helped to have some great new books that have come out from colleagues that I've been reading and I'm trying to do my own writing. And, try, you know, really, um, I, I got more subscriptions to long form Jewish periodicals because I just I don't I, you could get so swept up constantly in the news cycle that you're 
only thinking about the last 24 hours and the next 24 hours. And I just don't think it's healthy. You really have reflected back such a, a sense of what boundaries you've needed to set for yourself in this time. I'm kind of wondering about the other side of, of that coin, which is what's been invented Right. So you, you've talked a lot about the space, both time and, and physical that you set aside for yourself. I'm wondering, have you has things been birthed for you in this time, like family rituals or leniencies that you actually have begun relying upon or friendships or practices? Just what have you found has been invented or you've invented through the creative space that's been cracked open here. Yeah. The the dominant ritual that has emerged in our house is that we eat dinner as a family every night, literally every night. And that never, ever happened. It was, I was traveling. Stephanie was working late. Our babysitter would come and basically make like kids dinner. I would come home later, figure out something for Stephanie and I to eat. Some random assortment of children would be around. Um, we have sat down for dinner every night. I think maybe we missed once. Stephanie had a had a thing that she was actually back in school and had to miss. Um, that means that like I also stop my work day at a certain point and go make dinner. Uh, and that that too, I it it's been life changing in all sorts of crazy ways to have that as the routine. It's generated a sense of excitement in the house of like, oh, what do we have for dinner? The kids are eating better. Because they're not, they're complaining less because it's there and it's, it's a ritual and, and that's how the game, that's how the game works, you know? Um, that's been powerful. I will say, you know, it's not, I I feel like I maybe sounds a little rosy, you know, it's, it has been, it's been very hard to lose the, to lose the community of colleagues. Uh, you know, there's no comparison between, um, between going to a workplace every day and seeing people and sticking your head in someone's office and a conversation in the hallway um, and what we have now, which are Zoom staff meetings. There's no, there's zero comparison. I have staff, I have colleagues who we hired the week before the pandemic who I've never seen in person. And I just, and it's, and honestly, I work mostly from home because going, I can go into the office if I want, but it's dark and it's lonely and it, and, um, and it's quite hard to work from home. I think um, even if you're hyper productive and even if you have a good setup, it really is hard to work from home. And I and I, I've spent time trying to process what that, what that's about and how to how to make it feel a little different. Yeah, it is. A, it's a loss. It's another loss during this time. Uh, congregant asked me recently about after having lost a, a parent for the first time how she should adhere to the ideas during Shiva, but more importantly, during Shloshim and the following months of grieving, how not to interact socially, how not to party during Mm. this time. And one of the things that I reflected back to her is, I think that there is a presumption that in your abstention from all of those so-called frivolous interactions on the social end, that you could be reliant on some really necessary human connections that happen in the workplace or at Mm. school or whatever else you were doing. And so you could say, you know, it's not forbidden to have a a quick chat over heating your lunch at the microwave with a colleague, but then we're not going to host a dinner party this weekend. 
Mm-hmm. And now that we don't have that, I'm, I'm reluctant to prohibit. I'm exploring my reluctance, but I'm reluctant to say it's prohibited for you to go and get coffee with a friend uh, or, or go and attend at least this educational seminar that may or may not include music because they're lifelines. And just to go back to your idea of that life-saving nature of, of Pesach, and particularly in a time of grief, who am I to, to deprive somebody of those? Um, yeah. So there's an aching gap there. Yeah, and we, uh, you know, we certainly have um, have tried to maintain, re- you know, some friendships and relationships in the community involving just sitting out on people's porches, and, um, uh, you know, my kids have changed their orbit of who they play with, much more focused on geography than anything else, because now it's like who who can they actually see. Yeah. Um, without having to everybody getting in a car or being in one place. And that's been kind of fascinating to watch. You know, children adapt in totally different ways than adults. It's re- absolutely remarkable. Um, uh, yeah, but the, the workplace thing, it's, uh, it's heavy. I'm very sensitive to the fact that to the, all of the literature that's emerged around the dangers around productivity especially in an organization that has figured out how to be really, really productive in the last six months, but to also try to listen for the psychological tolls of productivity in your isolated room is not the same as the productivity of, of, of relationship and the productivity that comes with proximity. It is, it is the difference. It is everything about Chavruta learning in Judaism. It's just not a practice for the most part, maybe apart from Parsha study during the week, but ideally that's not happening alone because it's the concept of Chavruta and of being interactive with someone else that prevents you from going down crazy rabbit holes Mm -hmm. uh, that helps to keep you on task. Uh, It allows parts of your brain to light up that that cannot without that interaction. It's also what we call it the Kiddush factor, which is true in our programs with our staff who are in cities around the country. You run into people like Kiddush and things, interesting things happen. But it also, I also think it just, I think one friend, one friend said to me recently, he said, I think my social skills are atrophying. And I think it's true. Yeah. I think kid, like experiences like Kiddush force you to not let that, not let the experience of being in community atrophy. I think I'm a little nervous about what, you know, what happens when we go back and, and our, how ready are we to re-engage in the same ways that we were before? Especially around the idea of spontaneity especially mm-hmm. uh, oh, the willingness to improvise socially. It just isn't there because everything is scheduled. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this brings us kind of to the core question, if we're ready, which is, I'll, I'll say it in more than one sentence. The question that I base this podcast around is, are you coming back? That's, that, that presumes that there was a something that you once went to which we've heard lots about. Mm -hmm. And it is also assuming that there is going to be a something to go back to. But assuming that there is, are you coming back? And do you imagine yourself returning to Jewish communal life as you once participated? Or do you see a relationship with synagogue and the Jewish community as having been irrevocably altered even if the synagogue itself you might return to 
could possibly look a lot like it once did. Have you changed in such a way that you question whether you're coming back? No, I haven't questioned that. I'm, I would be ready to go back tomorrow or a year from now. Uh, partly because, as I said at the beginning, the function that I feel Shul was serving for me was, you know, was this convergence factor, was the walk to Shul, the seeing and being seen, the hearing and hearing a good sermon, which we have the benefit of hearing in our Shul every week, things like that. I really, really miss. Um, our family misses it. I think, you know, the other things that happened in Shul is like we would show up and then we basically, our kids would scatter and we'd re-aggregate near the end of Kiddush and walk home together. And those things are also really important. So the fact that we've been basically consolidated as a family in weird ways uh, in the past six, seven months, it doesn't mean we don't need a little oxygen. And, you know, so sometimes that happens because, you know, one of my kids will go and have a hangout with his friends down the street. But that experience of we're going to one place, everybody scatter and then come back together. Those things are also really important for family life and for our relationships in our family. Um, it's been game changing that our kids are, are in, in actual school and that Stephanie's been going to actual work. Um, it cha- it's, it's wonderful that everybody now comes home at the end of the day, but it's very different than when everyone was just like in different parts of the house doing their thing. Um, so I'm looking for I am very much looking forward to that. I'm. What I'm excited about, which is a different version of this question, is like, what lingers? Like, what about, you know, we'll never get away with doing another five-person Seder if we have the alternative not to. <laughs> um, but it was, I got to tell you, it was really special. Once, once we had to pivot and say, because we usually host everybody, you know, 25, 30 people, my whole family, my parents, my siblings. Once we had to say we're not doing that... And then to build up what's the version that could actually be special. It was so special. We were in our pajamas, you know, we... A pajama Seder all the way. Absolutely. The second Seder, we, we, it was dairy and actually it was vegan and delicious and totally never would have happened if there were 30 people coming. Never would have felt, never would have been allowed to be informal. We played games. We didn't worry about like the... I didn't quite worry about the structure in the same way. So there were so many special pieces of that, that um, on Shavuot, we we just devoted one of the meals to doing chopped, which is an activity that we do periodically now in the house. And that was our Yantif meal. I gave the kids like a pile of things. And I was like, the deal is, whatever you make, that's what you're eating for lunch. Right. <laughs> um, that's the kicker. You have to be right. willing to consume it yourself. You have to be willing to consume it. So that, that created a range of kind of risk uh, among our kids, depending on their personalities, yeah. so I'm just thinking about like what do we, what do we keep, what are the keepers? Because I'm, I'm convinced that I'm going to go back. Are we going to go back to Boston for holidays? I don't know because they trained a whole bunch of people for their backyard mm-hmm. beginning, and they may now have a new bench of people who are ready to take over, and we may now have created momentum here in a community for a backyard Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur that's a keeper. Um, but I'm sure that I'm going to go back to shul. Um, I'm not sure I'm going to go back to traveling all the time. Mm-hmm. Pretty sure I'm not. Pretty sure we're building a business model that doesn't require it quite as much. But I'm excited to also think about what do we, what do we keep from this? And I, I'll say the last thing on this is, I think I've I've felt I've had I've felt I don't know if you have also at times a little bit of pandemic guilt of the special things because we're we have the benefit of our health and um, and income security and health insurance 
that we've been able to lock down and be okay. We had food, food security throughout this time when a lot of people didn't. Um, and on one hand, I was like, wow, we're gain- there's some really special pieces of this. And then a lot of guilt that comes with, it's a pandemic. What do you mean that you're appreciating aspects of this? So I, that too is something that it's going to take a while to disentangle. Because even if you say, I hear the things that I want to keep from it, how do you keep it without feeling like guilty that you managed to get a special different type of Shabbat practice out of an experience that resulted in so many people suffering? Right. Giving yourself permission without the socially mandated apologetics to say and claim silver lining. To, to say and claim a silver lining when it when it might actually be sacred to you. One of the things you you know that I'm a part of the Power in 2020 Hartman and uh, M squared cohort here in Los Angeles, and something that you're saying is ringing true to a conversation that I had with my couple of dozen or so colleagues who are in that cohort as we met for the first time with the pandemic in swing, and we reflected how much we crave external sources of power setting limits such that those limit setting decisions don't fall to us it is always easier when someone comes along and says the synagogue may not be open this federation may not hold this event than it is to ask us as an institution to own the no and to own to use a phrase Mm. i've said many times the boundary setting we were we were grateful in the times when we had Uh, some major authorities in our city setting clear limits because it freed us to be creative within, yes, a very confining and complicated and difficult box, but they were creating that structure. And what I hear you saying to some extent, but I'm interested in your response to kind of as a final thought is uh, what I hear you saying to some extent is that you are interested in what's going to happen when the pandemic isn't there to tell you that you have to have a five person Seder or that you can only do this or that. And when those limits are your choice and not circumstantial. Yeah. I think another way to put it, I think that's very well expressed. I think another way to put it is look, I I run my organization and yet even as I portrayed like my travel schedule it's like a burden created that I have to bear. But I actually have a lot more agency around that than I have taken responsibility for to say, no, actually, why, why, am, I, why am I going when I'm getting a plane every other week? So now it's true. First of all, it would be nice to have it would be nice to have less agency in the places like government decisions around pandemic than we currently do. But in but but we're, what we also know is to express a greater sense of agency over the things that you actually have agency over. And I, I think in general, to, you know, to your point, you know, many of us, there, there's a, there's a kind of ideological trend out there to imagine that like 
some people have power and agency and some people don't. And those who have the, to have power is somehow morally inherently morally compromising and to be powerless is in some way uh, morally superior. But I think most of us actually know that we have agency in some areas and we have less agency in other areas. And sometimes we have to correct that. Sometimes we have to take more agency and, and sometimes we don't have access to it. But I think the I think on the, I think what you're kind of reminding on a human level is like, okay, the, the rules will change. Circumstances are going to change. Where can you, where are you grateful for, um, for somebody else being in charge finally, or for somebody like actually governing and, and where are the places where, um, now you have a chance to say, no, I, I actually can take control of this agenda in a new way. I think it's, I think it's an enormous, um, Torah in there for, for all of us as rabbis or as congregants or as just people in the world to say, I can, I can decide to shape this and I can decide, I can decide to go back, not because I'm supposed to go back because now I can actually gain, I can, I've realized I can gain something that I've really been missing. And that's a, that's a journey from, from like, uh, from habit to agency. And we'll be grateful for the choices that people make uh, with that agency when this God willing is all over. And Amen. I am so appreciative of your candor in this conversation of your openness to speak of the personal with some space left for you to wear all the hats that you that as, as I said we really never take off right yeah. they're all they're always there um like uh, transparencies on an overhead projector if I'm not dating myself too much <laughs> uh they're just sort of always there the last question that I want to ask is just a bonus question that I didn't warn you about um and um and I'll I'll cut this out if you decide that you that you don't want to share this particular piece. But I just want to ask if you think that there are people out there who are worthy of being asked this question that I might not be thinking of. Meaning, who should we be asking? Are are you coming back? Or do you think that there are important voices to hear on this question in particular, or do you think that it's? I'm I'm interested in your opinion about this question being asked at all. I appreciated your interest in answering it, but I wonder. Who else could be answering this question? I, uh, I think, I think you should talk to kids. Hmm. I'm, uh, you're watching a whole generation of B'nai Mitzvah kids uh, for whom it's not even a question of am I going back? It's this was the, this would have been the threshold post Bar Mitzvah. For the, the, in which they would already have been asking the question, am I going back to shul after my bar mitzvah, pandemic or no pandemic? And they had, they've been robbed, basically, of, um, of a huge experience in their lives. And it's not clear to me that they... I know, I know a handful of kids who will not talk about their bar mitzvahs already. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to be reminded of it. So for them, it's not as much, are you going to go back? It's, are you going to re-engage in synagogue life when it can look like something that you missed out on? And to me, I feel like this is one, this is a very, very big one because I, we may have lost, you know, the, the tragic size, we may have lost the bite at the apple with a whole bunch of folks um, because of this. Um, or the more positive way to say it is, can we provide an offering in Jewish life for people who felt that they didn't get a chance, can we create an offering for them to say, you know what, there's more here than was possible at your rite of passage moment. That's what I would, that's my suggestion. 
I appreciate that. And it resonates with what you said also in answer to the question of whether you're coming back, which is just to be cognizant of the vulnerable people, the people at the seams, whether those are 13-year-olds or folks who just don't have the same access or agency as we have. And to ask them, what do you need now, uh, certainly, yeah. but also to turn to them to ask if they're coming back and perhaps what they'll need in order to come back. Yeah. yeah. This has been just a really enriching time for me. Thank you so much for engaging with these questions, for engaging with me. Um, I hope that folks look forward to engaging with uh, Identity Crisis, with, with your podcast also, to picking up the New Jewish Canon, uh, to checking out the Hartman Institute and all of their offerings. So Dr. Yehuda Kurtzer, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Are You Coming Back? Do you have someone you'd like to recommend for a conversation like this one? Someone who might have a fascinating personal perspective on returning to Jewish rhythms beyond the pandemic. Reach out to us at hchorney at tbala.org.